As you know, normally I pray now, but before I pray, I do want to say a word to you. We rejoice in the Lord allowing us this privilege that we have. We know that it is the Lord that has brought this about, and we give Him praise. We are very thankful for His goodness and His grace that He has shown to us, and there's no doubt in our mind that He has providentially guided us through this. He has moved upon the hearts of both those who are members of Castlewood as well as those who are members of Grace. And we are thankful to him, and we gather today to worship him and give him praise for what he has done. We look forward to getting to know those from Castlewoods better. We are so thankful so far of your graciousness and kindness that has been shown to us in so many ways already. And we pray that God would knit our hearts together as we seek to worship him in truth and spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you, thanking you for your goodness and grace that has been shown to us in so many ways. Father, we know that you are full of mercy, full of grace, and we give you praise for that. We thank you how you have providentially brought us together into this place. And we pray, Father, that you would use us to bring glory and honor to your name. Use us, Father, to reach others with the gospel. Use us, Father, to teach and make disciples. Father, we pray that all that would be done in this place would be pleasing in your sight. We pray, Father, for this service as we have already prayed, and we continue to ask, Father, that your Spirit would meet with us, that your Spirit would work in our lives as only He can, for we know that He must open eyes, He must unstop ears, so that we might see and we might hear Your truth. We pray, Father, that You would save any here today that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. How we pray for Your Spirit to move and work in their lives and draw them to see their sinfulness and their need of Christ. We also pray, Father, for all Christians, that you would work in our lives, that you would make us more like Christ, give us understanding of your word, give us strength to rightly apply it to our lives. We pray, Father, that as we think about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the work that he does in building his church, that we would be encouraged and that we would desire to be a part of that work, and that you would use us, Father, to faithfully serve you and worship you in our life. Father, we pray for those that are unable to be with us today. You know their reasons, you know their needs, and we pray that you would meet those so that they might gather back with us soon. We pray, Father, for the gospel that is preached throughout the world this day, We know that it will not return void, but it will accomplish your purpose to bring honor and glory to your name. And all of this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we will read beginning there in verse 13 through verse 20, but we will only be looking at one verse this morning. But to have the context, I want us to begin in verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. 
Now, when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And he said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah and still others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. He said to them, but you, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon or Jonas, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Excuse me. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, if you remember a few months ago, we looked at this particular passage in Mark. It does not have all the details that it has here in Matthew, and we studied Peter's great confession. But this morning, I want us to look at that one verse, verse 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Did you know that there are over 300 religious groups in the U.S.? 35 Christian denominations, 124 other religions, and 127 New Age religions. You go from monotheism, children, you know what that word is? That means that there's only one God, to polytheism, which means many gods. Many of these groups, of course, say that they are the church. But very few truly understand ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. That's what that word means, children. Now we must ask the question, what constitutes the church? How do we know who is the real church? How do we recognize the false church? How is the church to grow? Now, these are very important questions, and I hope we are able to answer them as we continue through the sermon. To answer these questions, we must go where? To the Scriptures. We must not go to the church growth experts who have done much harm, not good. Let me read what one writer said about these experts. They believe the size of the crowd rather than the depth of the heart determines success. If the crowd was large, then surely God was blessing that ministry. Churches were built on demographic studies, professional strategies, marketing research, meetings felt ministries, and sermons consist of these techniques. We are told that preaching was out. Relevance was in. Doctrine didn't matter nearly as much as innovation. If it wasn't cutting edge or consumer friendly, it was doomed. 
the mention of sin, salvation, and sanctification were taboo and replaced by Starbucks strategy and sensitivity. Now it's sad that this is the case with many churches. And we have to understand that this isn't something that just happened yesterday. This is something that started all the way back in the mid-60s. Church growth was introduced in 1965 at Fulton Seminary. And the question that they tried to ask is, how do we reach people with the gospel given the changing climate in the United States? They said, we must understand the culture of the people we are trying to reach. We cannot simply enter a different culture. We must seek to understand the culture in relevance. Now let me say that there is some truth in that, especially if you're going to another country. You need to understand the culture. You need to understand the people. But we're talking about the United States of America. And we're seeking to understand who people are in relationship to the Scriptures. Now many of the churches followed the emerging formulation that was taught there at Fulton. Rick Warren, of course, many of you have heard his name, if not all of you, started in 1980 by going door to door, and he asked those that he went to, what would you like in a church? Now, of course, if you go to lost people and you ask them, what would you like in the church, they're going to give you all kinds of things, right? Well, he took that, of course, and he used that to develop a church. Of course, later he came out with the Purpose Driven Church book, and he sold one million copies of it. Then he came out with the Purpose Driven Life, and he sold 12 million copies of it. Now, I want to say that if I ever write a book and I sell 12 million copies, I will do like he did. I will give all of my salary that Grace has paid me back to Grace. But I don't think you have to worry about that. (laughs) If I wrote a book, Maybe my wife would read it. (laughs) Of course, there's also Willow Creek that even began before Rick Warren in 1979. And it became the main promoter of the emerging formula. And nearly 30 years after Bill Hobble started the church, in 2007, after a multi year study of the effectiveness of the programs and their philosophy of ministry, he released the results in 2007. And the study findings are in a book called Revealed Where You Are. And it was co-authored by two of their executive pastors there at Willow Creek Community Church. Of course, Bill Heibel, the founding pastor resigned in 2018, but yet he said these things in 2007. He said, we find this result to be earth-shattering, groundbreaking, mind-blowing, and that seems that the experts were wrong. Imagine that. He goes on and he says, some of the stuff that we have put millions of dollars into, thinking it would help our people grow and develop spiritually. When the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people at all. 
Now think about that. They put millions of God's money into these programs and it wasn't helping them, he says. He goes on, other things that we didn't put money into and didn't put much staff against is stuff that our people were crying out for. We made a mistake. What we should have been doing when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have been starting to tell them and teaching the people that they have to take responsibility and become self-feeders. You know, the Bible talks about that a little bit. Becoming a, quote, disciple, self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Teach people how to read the Bible. Between services. How to do the spiritual practices more aggressively on their own. Our dream is that we fundamentally change the way we do church. Now this is after 30 years they're coming to this conclusion. That we take out a clean sheet of paper and we rethink all of the old assumptions, replace it with new insight, insight that are informed by research and rooted in Scripture. Our dream is really to discover what God is doing and how He's asking us to transform this planet. I think everything that they're speaking about has been answered in Scripture. If you believe that Jesus really meant what He said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. If you really believe the words of Jesus in John 6, 39, this is the will of Him who sent me, that all which He has given me, I shall lose none, but shall raise it up in the last day. If you really believe Revelations 3, 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out the name from the book of life, but I will confess His name before my Father and before the angels. If you really believe these verses, plus many more, how does the church growth theory fit into this? God in His sovereignty, has already determined that His people will be saved from their sins. You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. We know that. We know that God has a people He will save. He's already determined to save these people from their sins and to sanctify them and eventually bring them to glorification. They are the ones that constitute the church of Jesus Christ. And the death of Jesus Christ secures the salvation of His people for Himself. Jesus said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him, and I will raise Him up in the last day. What we have to understand is there is an actual atonement. For His people. It is not simply a potential. But it's an actual atonement. That atonement that does exactly what Jesus desired for it to do. And that is to save people from their sins. Our Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 says... 
the universal church may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, and will be gathered in one under Christ, her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now Jesus Christ, by His supernatural power, has chosen His church. He draws His church. He regenerates His church. He justifies His church. He brings His church through salvation and sanctification to eternal glorification. Jesus does all this. So the question that we must ask is, how does the Lord Jesus Christ build His church In other words, by what means does He build it? And has He revealed those means to us? Well, of course, I believe all of us can answer that question. We know that He has shown us the means and how His church is to be built. Now, most of us would agree that there are many so-called churches that have large numbers... But are those churches filled with sheep or goats, wheat or tares? Has Jesus built a church that has the elect in it? Well, we'd have to say yes. That's the invisible church. We know that he calls his people from their sin into salvation. And he continues to build his church. Of course, we know that there are a lot of places that call themselves churches, but yet they're filled with tares, they're filled with goats. They may be very big, and they may be even enduring. Remember, in the first century, there were the Gnostics, and there's still some Gnostics that are around today, promoting heresies. But of course, the largest of all is the Roman Catholic Church that continues to lead many astray with their false teachings. And there are liberal churches, and there's cults, there's friendly friendly seeker groups. And many of these continue to thrive, even though they are not the church of God. They thrive because people want to go to them because they want to have their ears tickled, and their eyes are blinded to the truth. Do you realize that there are more religious groups with tares than there are with wheat or sheep. And we see in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not do all of these things? And then we see that Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you. See, it's much easier to build a church with tares than it is to build a church with God's chosen. I mean, all you have to do if you want to build a church with tares is simply have good entertainment. Hire a band, let the band play to get everybody to come, bus them in, give them good food, give them trinkets, give them a short pep talk, and you will have a church filled with tares. But all who believe that Jesus Christ is the head of the church 
and that he builds it by his divine design, determined by the Father, energized by the Holy Spirit, then all of you want to know this. You want to know that he is the one that builds it by his means. Now I know that that's a long introduction into my sermon. My sermon is not extra long. I was about to say it's about the same length of my introduction, but I don't think that would be honest. But anyway, I want us to look at four points pertaining to what Jesus says here in this verse. That He builds His church and how He reveals to His people how He builds His church. First of all, what did Jesus mean when He says, I will build my church? Of course, to discover the answer, we must go to Scripture. Do you realize that the Gospels, in the Gospels, there's only two references to the church. This is one of them. And then a couple of chapters over, in chapter 18, verse 17, it talks about church discipline, and that's the second one. So only two references by Jesus in the Gospel to the church. But there's no doubt that Matthew 16, 18, that the church lies at the very heart of Jesus Christ. It lies at the very heart of His ministry. And He's telling Peter, the reason I have come into the world is to build my church. So we see that Jesus is determined to build His church. And he makes this solemn declaration, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, if you you realize that Jesus Christ is building only one church. There's not churches. He does not say churches. He says church. The Greek word... For you Greek scholars out there, who's been taught very adequately by our pastor, Tiago, you know that word is ecclesia. And that word ecclesia refers to called out ones. It refers to an assembly, a Christian assembly. Those who have been called out out of the world into the church. So who is in the church, in his church? We know it's all who are redeemed by His blood. Those who have fled in repentance from their sin by faith to Jesus Christ. They've been changed by grace. They are called what? New creatures. Their life has been radically changed. They have come out of darkness into light. They are called the called out ones. They're called chosen. They're called elect, saved, redeemed, the justified, the sanctified, the children of God, the peculiar people of God, a holy nation. All of those names are used for members of the church. A.A. Hodge said, There's no doubt but that if there is one God, there is but one church. If there is but one Christ, there is but one church. If there is but one cross, there is but one church. If there is but one Holy Spirit, there is but one church. In other words, no local church can say we are the true church, the only true church. For all of God's elect make up the true church. 
They may be meeting right here now, or they may be meeting in Jackson, or they may be meeting elsewhere, but all who are in the true church worship the true and living God. Now, the true church belongs to Jesus Christ. He died for it. He purchased it with His blood. He's the head of it. He preserves it. He protects it. He blesses it. And finally, He will glorify it. Matthew Henry said, When men are projecting the church's ruin, God is preparing it for salvation. See, it's just as impossible to silence the church as it was to silence Jesus Christ Himself. So Jesus says, I will build my church. Second, Jesus Christ is the builder. I. But what does it mean when he says, I will build my church? Well, really, there's a threefold answer. He builds it by dying for it, which does what? It removes our sins, makes us acceptable before God pays the debt. He builds it by His resurrection and His exaltation. He's exalted, rises from the grave and exalted to heaven. Why did He have to go to heaven? What did He tell His disciples in John chapter 15? That He would send His Holy Spirit. So His Holy Spirit comes to draw sinners, to change sinners. And He also builds it by the declaration of the gospel, which we see a little bit later as Peter begins to preach the gospel there at Pentecost, which the gospel is the keys of heaven that is referred to also in this passage. So in one sense, the church was founded by the Trinity, in other words. The Father chose, the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit applies the work of redemption to a person's life. But we see that Jesus is the preeminence the Savior of the church. And it's His special work. He came into the world to redeem for Himself a chosen people. As First John, I mean, as John chapter 1 verse 12 says, to as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become sons of God. Peter later on puts it this way in First Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and on. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people acquired for a possession, so that you may tell out of the virtues of Him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not previously been shown mercy, but have been shown mercy. So we see that those whom Christ calls and sets apart, He calls them the church. It is His special work, His special work of redemption, a people for Himself. He oversees the building of the church. Now, how does He do this? Well, we know that He does it through those whom He calls, pastors and teachers, to equip the people. And Paul addresses this. He addresses it there in Ephesus, in the book of Ephesians, when he tells the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. 
And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some shepherds and teachers for the perfecting of the saints unto the work of the ministry, unto the building of the body of Christ. So we see quite clearly that he set apart elders, pastors, teachers for the very edification of the people. Paul said, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to serve those who believe. So it's the task of the pastor to do what? To preach. That's his number one task, to preach the Word of God. He must be focused on preaching the Word of God. He must lift up Christ. And if he lifts up Christ, what does it say? I will draw all men unto me. So it's through the foolishness of preaching, as Paul says. And it's amazing to see how Jesus Christ builds His church through the foolishness of preaching. I mean, think about when He was on earth and He chose His disciples. I mean, He chose the most unlikely people. I mean, if we were going to start a church, we would not have chosen these people. We would not have chosen fishermen. We would not have chosen tax collectors, women, demonics. Blind beggars, all kinds of people he chose to follow him. And then at Pentecost, Peter took those keys and he opened up the kingdom of heaven by preaching the glorious gospel. And many were saved. The church grew. It grew from 120 to what? 3,000 in one day. And then as you continue to read Acts, we see in chapter 4 that it didn't stop growing. That on another occasion, five thousands came into the kingdom of God. And then in Acts chapter 5, we see that even more were added. In Acts chapter 6, the number of disciples multiplied. In Acts chapter 9, again, it says that it multiplied. It continued to grow. The lost came to know Christ. And they were new creatures. Now, I thank God that the building of the church does not depend on me or my ability or my persuasiveness. Some think it depends on man. But this is why the visible church is in such a sad condition. A pastor is not called to entertain non-believers. The church is not to be like the world. It's to be completely different. It's been called out of darkness into light. And you are not to measure the church by worldly standards, but by the holiness of its members. Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. How is Christ lifted up? It's through the preaching of the gospel. No other way. And the Word and the Spirit brings about salvation as well as sanctification. And it's the job of the elders, the pastors of the church, to see that Jesus Christ is formed in you. We must be obedient to our calling and see that you become more like Christ. Now sometimes that's very difficult. Because see, we are sinful. Human beings. Even though we're saved, we're sinful. And a lot of times when someone speaks to you about your life, 
we're quick to do what? To be offended, right? But we must speak the truth in love and pray that the Holy Spirit would, as Jesus says, or as Paul says there, that Christ will be formed in you. It's important that you heed the words of God, that you heed what is preached and taught here at the church. Paul says, And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. I mean, we've seen a little bit of that over the last few months. How God is working all things according to His purpose. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I love looking at God's providence, being able to look back. I mean, a lot of times you don't see it when you're going through it. But after you go through it and you're able to look back, I mean, it it just mounts up within you and you want to praise God. And and it's been like that over the last four or five months and seeing how God has worked things out to bring us out here to join with Castlewood. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And we praise God for that. That He's working all things out according to His purpose to do what? To build His church. And we rejoice in that and we give Him praise that His church continues to thrive. God the Father has the same purpose as God the Son to build His church. Some of you know my dear friend that's going to be with the Lord, Errol Holtz. Errol Holtz has shared with us, he's been with us a number of times before he passed away, about how God worked in his life and God led him to the first church that he pastored, a little bitty church that he was asked to go and pastor, uh, who, who did not want to close the doors of that church. They only had one member left. And there was a couple that would go down there and they would meet with her and they would have their Bible study time. And this couple asked Pastor Errol Holtz if he would come and preach at that church. And he said that he went down there the first time to meet with them and there was a very small group of them. There was eight individuals, uh, three children, five adults, and two dogs, he said. He said the dogs would come and they would sit there. And he said, matter of fact, they would know when it was about time for the service to end. And they'd get up and they'd stretch and they would begin to tussle with one another. And he knew it was time to end the service because the dogs were telling him so. But he said the Lord laid on his heart to pastor that church. And he began to preach the truth and teach the truth. And he said nothing happened for a year. He said a few people would come and they would visit with him. He said, but our congregation did not grow that much. We just had a few people added to that. But he said, after a year of meeting and praying and Bible study, he said, then God began to do something. He said it was just amazing to stand back and watch what God was doing because he knew that it was not of him. He said he knew that it was all of God and what God was doing there in that little church there at Klutzville. Excuse me. And God began to save people. He said beforehand he had one deacon and he said that deacon made sure that 12 o'clock sharp 
Stop. Don't go over 12 o'clock. And it said the Lord changed him to where it didn't matter how long he preached. They said God continued to bless to where they could not get all the people into the sanctuary. People would literally have to stand outside the windows to listen to him preach. And that church is still, that was been over 50 years ago, that still is a thriving church that has built a new building and it was packed when they had his funeral there two years ago. God builds his church. And we see that Jesus Christ oversees the building. And he saves and brings people into the church as he sees fit in his timing. The third thing is that we have the construction of the church. Upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus told Peter. Now he speaks of the foundation. Now this is a very difficult verse, and we know that Roman Catholics have taken this verse, and as a result of this, they have come up with the idea of a pope. Nothing could be further from the truth. But we do have to see that Jesus tells Peter that he is to help lay the foundation. That the church that Jesus builds is built upon the foundation of cross-bearing disciples. Those are the words of Sinclair Ferguson. We are told that Jesus, of course, is the chief cornerstone. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation stone. So what is Jesus telling Peter here? Well, he seems to be telling Peter that I'm going to build my church on you. Scripture teaches that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation stones with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Now, Jesus is not telling Peter that he's the Savior of the church. I don't think I have to convince you of that. He is simply telling Peter that he is going to use him to accomplish the work of building his church. As you have read in the Gospels, each time you come to the disciples, whose name is first? Peter, James, and John, right? Peter. You find Peter's name listed first always. Now, why is that the case? Well, Peter was used of God to open the gospel to the Jews there at Pentecost. Who got up and preached? Peter got up and preached. And then who was sent to the Gentiles? Those Gentile dogs, as they were called. Peter didn't want to go. Remember, he had the vision. And Peter said, unclean. Lord, I will never eat anything unclean. But of course, it got his attention and he showed that They were not unclean. The Gentiles were not unclean. That he was to go to them and preach the gospel to them as well. Peter became a great leader of the church of Jesus Christ. Peter didn't have any superiority or supremacy. Paul makes that very clear in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, right? When he says, who am I? Who is Apollos and who is Peter? In other words, he's saying we're nobodies. We're just simply instruments in the hands of God. 
What we have to understand, as Paul points out there, is that it's all of Christ. It's Christ that we must look to. Not to Peter, not to Paul, not to Apollos. But yet Peter was like a Moses who led Israel out of the wilderness or out of captivity. Or he was like a Joshua who led Israel into the promised land. So in a special way, Jesus used Peter... But this Peter wasn't the same Peter that's in this passage right here. How do we know that? What happened after this when he points out and makes this great confession? Just right after, remember we just studied Mark in this chapter just a few months ago. Peter said, when Jesus said, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I've got to suffer. I've got to be beaten. I've got to be spat on and I've got to be crucified. And what did Peter say? Go right ahead. I'm right behind you, Lord. What did Peter say? No, you're not. And what did Jesus tell Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. So it wasn't this same Peter. It was a changed Peter. A Peter who understood the truth. It was not the Peter who was rebuked. It was not the Peter who denied him three times. It was not the Peter who deserted him. It was a Peter who was changed by the grace of God and understood what Jesus was to do. And we see that Jesus used him in a glorious way, even though Peter struggled with this privilege. Calvin said, The disciples find it almost impossible to believe that it would be through Peter, the likes of Peter, that I'm going to build my church. But it was Peter who made the great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the entire Christian church is built upon that confession. The apostles laid the church's foundation by preaching that confession. Look at what it says there in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 19. But then you are no longer strangers or sojourners. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom all the building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also are being built together into the dwelling place of God in spirit. So we see that he is building the church because he has laid the foundation. Fourth, there is a conflict, we see. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Now we know that the church throughout history has faced conflict, persecution. The devil in the world hates the church and will do everything that it can to seek to destroy the church even though it will not be victorious. I mean, as we just talked about, immediately the devil got a hold of Peter after he made this great confession and and tried to get Peter to persuade Jesus not to do what he had to do. I mean, there is great conflict. J.C. Ryle says, where there is grace, there is conflict. Now, of course, where did the conflict begin? Genesis. Right? 
And we see what took place in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which tells us that there will continue to be conflict. And we know that Satan uses the children of this world to do his work, and some are even in the visible church, sad to say. But yet, since the beginning, he has been at war with the church. And the Old Testament reveals to us redemptive history. There is the church in the Old Testament. We need to understand that. It began with Adam and Eve. They were the church. But God fulfilled His promises, promise made there in Genesis 3, 15. Even though Satan did all that he could to prevent his church from going. And we see that he sought to use Peter. His deceitfulness was great. And some in the visible church today fall to his prey. And Paul warns the church there at Ephesus about the savage wolves that would enter into the church. And he told them that they were not to be ignorant of Satan's strategies. Now what are Satan's strategies? Well, their opposition on the outside. And we see that in the book of Acts. I mean, when you begin to read the book of Acts, what happened? There was that great opposition. They put Peter and them in jail. And they beat them and told them not to preach the gospel. What did they do? They were faithful to preach the gospel. The opposition only caused the church to grow greater. But then, shortly after that, there was position seeking inside the church. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? What happened to them? Well, they were jealous. They were jealous of Barnabas. They were jealous that he was looked upon by all the other Christians as a man of God and a servant of God and and how he had given money to the church to sustain others. And they wanted to do the same. They wanted the same uh, position as he had. But they did not do it because they were led by the Spirit to do it. They did it out of selfishness. So we see that inside the church, Satan does the same thing to try to hinder the growth of the church. And we see on through the book of Acts that there's other problems. We see that, of course, there began to be that arguing in the church. There was the arguing between the Jews and and the Greeks. Uh, The Greeks felt that, and Gentiles, they felt like they were being looked down upon that the Jews were having a better favor and they were being favored. And of course, God wisely gave them an answer to that by giving them deacons to minister to the people. Now we are taught to be ready for spiritual warfare. We are to put on the whole armor of God for the battle. Satan's followers hate the truth because truth does what? It destroys his stronghold. So therefore, he's going to battle all that he can so that he might keep his stronghold. We have to realize that we will always be at war as long as we're here on this earth with Satan. It won't end until Christ returns. Jesus never promised us earthly peace as far as not having any problems here on this earth. There will constantly be problems that we have to deal with. Now, He does promise us peace as far as internal peace. But there's a lot of people that have the wrong idea. There's people that will go to another church and say, you know, I'm coming to this church because I want comfort. I want peace. If anybody ever comes to our church and says, look, I'm coming to this church because I want comfort and peace, I'm going to tell them, look, if 
Find another church. Because you come to this church, I guarantee it, you're not going to have peace like what you're looking for. If anything, things are going to get much more difficult. Because the closer you get to Christ, the more you become like Christ, what happens? The more difficulties you will be faced with in your life. Because we're in a war. And Jesus told His disciples to count the cost, to take up the cross and follow Him daily, to deny self, and that never ends as long as we're here on this earth. We will endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. So therefore, we're not simply to seek to enjoy this life, but we're to suffer with Christ. And millions have suffered for the gospel. One report 55,000 Christians die every year for their faith. Did you hear that? 55,000 Christians. We don't hear that in the news media. By the year 2025, it says there will be 210,000 martyred yearly. 200 million around the world suffer all kinds of persecution. But this is not something new. This has been happening from the very beginning. Of course, we just celebrated Reformation Day. And we know what the Reformers did, but many of those Reformers suffered much. I mean, they wanted to kill Luther. They didn't want to exalt him. And we know that they killed others. John Husk was burned at the stake. John Wycliffe was burned at the stake. And then 43 years later, what did they do? They dug up his bones, they burned them, and took the ashes and they threw them in a brook. But what was interesting, that brook flowed into a river, and that river flowed into a bigger river, and that river flowed into the ocean. And they said that that was symbolic of how John Wycliffe had embodied the doctrines which he taught because it was dispersed all over the world when it went into the ocean, his ashes. And that's how God works in that mighty, wonderful way. I said we only had four. We got five points, I'm sorry. Final one. The confidence shall not prevail against it. What a promise Jesus Christ has given us. He will preserve His church. His church shall stand in spite of the many onslaughts against the assembly. Now notice it says the gates of hell. What are gates? Gates are something that or for defense, right? You build a city and you build a gate to keep people out. It says the gates of hell. In other words, what's happening? It means that Christians are storming the gates of hell. We're kicking in the gates of hell. We're going into darkness. We're going into this world and we're preaching the gospel. And by the gospel, those who are blind are beginning to see. Because we are to be aggressive. And as we are aggressive, we will be victorious, not the gates. The gates will not withstand us. We will kick them in. And as long as there is a church in this world, it will be a conqueror of darkness. 
I mean, even in the darkest days of history, Christ had a people who remained faithful. John Whitcliffe, John Husk, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and I could go on and on. These are just a few of the reformers that God used to bring about reformation, to bring about the biblical foundation of the truth. And Jesus has never been without a witness, even though there were times that it was very dark and very dim and many had fallen away, yet He had His faithful few. Some have been like David and and Peter backslidden, but He restored them and used them in a great and mighty way. Others experienced doubt and fear like Elijah and the disciples. Remember the disciples after he was crucified? They were locked up, hidden in a room. But all of God's chosen will be at the wedding feast. And they will join Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, for eternity. God may allow the devil to treat us like he did Job. Some will be put in prison. Some will be burned at the stake. Others will be tortured and others killed. But after all, if they've killed the body, they can do no more. For they cannot kill the soul. Remember what the apostles said when they were arrested and they were beaten for the gospel's sake? They said, we must obey God rather than man. And then after they were beaten, they did what? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer the shame for His name. When is the last time we rejoiced for suffering for Christ? Hmm? I hadn't suffered much for Christ. But there are those today that are suffering Christ. They cannot even meet in an open assembly like what we're meeting today because if they meet in open assembly, they will be persecuted and many will be put to death. But what a glorious honor and privilege it is to serve our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What a glorious privilege it is to be a part of His church. To be used in His church to bring about the growth of His church. How we should pray, Lord, allow me to be like a Peter. To be used of You to see that Your church grows and brings honor and glory to Your name. Use me. In your church, don't let me be just a pew sitter. Father, let me be a Peter. Let me be a James. Of course, we know the first martyr. Let me be a John. Is that the desire of your heart? Or are you just simply satisfied to attend a worship service and wait till the next week when you attend a worship service again? I close by asking you, are you a member of the true church? Are you actively seeking to be used of Jesus Christ to build His church? Are you willing to face conflict, criticism, 
harassment, to see that his church grows and maintains purity. Do you have confidence that Jesus Christ will prevail no matter what happens to his church? That it will prevail. How I pray that God's Spirit would work in each of our hearts this day to make us more like Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for these words that we have looked at this morning, knowing that Jesus Christ is the builder of his church and that he is successful. And we pray, Father, for those that are not in his church, how we pray that today would be the day of salvation how we pray that your Spirit would work in their heart and bring about conviction of sin, opening their eyes to their sinfulness so that they may run to Christ and find mercy and grace. And Father, I pray for Christians. May we be obedient and faithful in being used of Thee to build your church. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.